2: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Abigail Perkis, author of Hurricane Sandy on New Jersey's Forgotten Shore, published this year by Cornell University Press. Dr. Perkis, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm an associate professor of history at Kane University in Union, New Jersey. And Kane was immediately affected by Hurricane Sandy when it hit the New Jersey coastline on 2012, or I'm sorry, in 2012. A number of our students, their homes were catastrophically damaged by the storm. Our infrastructure at the university was likewise um, damaged. The school was closed for about two weeks. So. Um, I came back to campus after we reopened, recognizing that um, something really significant had just happened. And just a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine who at the time was the assistant historian at the Senate um, and also uh, on the board of the Regional Oral History Association, Oral History in the Mid-Atlantic region asked me if I knew of anybody doing oral history work around the storm um, in, in the New Jersey area. And I was at the time kind of wrapping up my first book project and had done a number of oral history interviews for that project, but hadn't ever been formally trained in doing a large scale oral history project. And I said to her, you know, I I don't know anyone doing it, but as it happens, this sounds like a really neat opportunity to think about doing this work in a more intentional way. The Regional Oral History Association was offering their support in terms of expertise, in terms of um, kind of person power. And I loved the idea of getting involved in something like that at the beginning. And so I walked into my department chair's office and I said, what do you think about this? How might we do it? And he said, I love it. Let's do it in the classroom in January. And this was probably late November 2012. So, you know, all of our students had already registered for classes. They were getting ready for finals. And within a week, we had the university backing. We had funding for recorders. We had a relationship with oral history in the Mid-Atlantic region for students to present at their spring concert and we had started advertising this course. So this, this kind of ball started rolling and, and a project was born without any of us actually realizing that uh, we were creating something that ultimately would be bigger than the sum of its individual parts.
2: It's great when everything just comes together like that.
1: Yeah, I, I still look back on it. Um, you know, we're nearly a decade to the anniversary of the storm. And we certainly didn't go into this project with the expectation that I would write a book afterward. It started as a class exercise. And it just grew in ways that felt really significant, even in the moment. I think we realized that the students really realized that they were becoming a part of something that would have a history of itself, right? That they were creating a database, essentially. They were creating a set of primary sources. And they really took responsibility for that. And took a, a deep sense of um, of onus in in doing that work, and I think because of that, it it just became this self self perpetuating engine.
2: Yeah. So as you mentioned, we're recording this just I guess a little over a month shy of the ten year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy hitting New Jersey. So. Before we get into the, the details of what's in your book, maybe you can just refresh all of our memories, give us the, the big picture context of what Hurricane Sandy was.
1: Yeah, I get so in the weeds of the project that I forget that, you know, in, in most people's lives, it was it was just, I hate to say it this way, but just another hurricane that, that hit the United States that year. Um, for the folks that live in New Jersey, it was obviously so much more. Hurricane Sandy was, at the time, one of the largest storms to ever hit the Eastern seaboard. And unlike Florida or, or the Caribbean, it happened in a place that just isn't built for catastrophic storm damage. Residents are not used to hurricane preparations. You know, they get, they get wind, they get rain, but they never see the kind of destruction that a storm like Sandy wrought. And I think because of that, people had a really hard time conceptualizing how to prepare for that. Um, so I actually I live in Philadelphia. I live about two hours from campus and an hour and a half from the Jersey Shore. And I went to bed the night that the storm hit without power, um, but woke up and and power came back on within I don't know five or six hours of of when we woke up. And I spent the next couple of weeks actually sitting at a coffee shop doing page proofs for my my the the book that I was publishing at the time, not fully appreciating what had taken place at the shore. And we were seeing images of of New York city, of Manhattan, of, of Queens, of Atlantic city. Um, you know, the, the more kind of focal areas of the media attention and it was, it was devastating. Um, but we were not seeing necessarily the full expanse of the damage in New Jersey and specifically in some of the, the smaller, less, um, less touristed areas that kind of exist between Staten Island and the what we call the Bay Shore, the the Raritan and Sandy Hook Bays in kind of northeastern New Jersey.
2: Yeah, so I guess it's good to clarify the the forgotten shore that's referenced in your title is that that stretch uh, kind of facing towards uh, New York City from the south, from the, the Raritan to Sandy Hook, is the area that you're really focusing on.
1: Um, exactly.
2: And why is it called the Forgotten Shore?
1: When my students and I said, and, and I apologize, I I know I'm bouncing back and forth between this oral history project and the book itself, and, and they're so intertwined because the book really is a narrative history drawn from the oral history interviews that we collected from 2013 to 2016. When we set out to collect these interviews, we started to think about what stories we wanted to tell, and we gravitated toward the Bay Shore not because we thought that it was the hardest hit area, but in fact because two of the six students who signed up for the class were were living there and had experienced that destruction firsthand, and so we realized you know, there was there was a bit of an opportunity there to make connections in these communities and for folks to be able to tell their stories um, because those stories weren't necessarily being picked up by, uh, you know, on the airwaves and, and by the media attention. And I don't think we thought about it as a forgotten shore in that moment and not until we started to collect interviews. And we, we collected close to 80 interviews all told. Did we realize the impact of the attention on the like capital J, capital S Jersey shore on the folks that were living off of the, the, the Atlantic coast, off of the, that shore, um, in terms of feeling like they were getting kind of marginalized, right. That they were really feeling forgotten, um, you know, victimized by the storm and then victimized by the inattention that followed.
2: Yeah. And then to pick up on what you had said earlier about, you know, this is an area that doesn't experience hurricanes regularly, uh, like Florida does. But in fact, you even mentioned that they had experienced a hurricane just the previous year, Hurricane Irene. And it went so well that people kind of downplayed the danger uh, when Sandy was approaching because they're like, oh, we already had one of these. It it worked out fine.
1: Yeah. Hurricane Irene. And and I, I apologize. I forget who, who said this, but um, was referred to at the time as, as a governmental wolf cry, right? People got so worried about Irene in, in August of 2011 and prepared so well. And then, in fact, the storm kind of lost luster as it made its way up the coast and and caused damage, but nothing to the extent that that Sandy ultimately did, um, that they, they kind of poo-pooed what was coming next and said, you know, we, we've, we've, we've heard these, these warnings before, and it's not going to be that big a deal. So maybe we'll, we'll sit this one out.
2: Yeah. And so then connecting to what you've said about this is growing out of an oral history uh, project. You, you describe the book in, in your preface with this great phrase, you call it an intimate window. Uh, so can you talk a bit about you know, what that means about your approach to telling this story of what happened during this hurricane.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that when we hear about storms, when we encounter these stories as, as as an American public, right, we hear the acute moment that they, you know, they make landfall, we, we see that immediate destruction. And then because we live in this, this you know, incredibly fast news cycle, it kind of fades from our attention. And what we set out to do here was kind of bridge that gap to tell the stories of the storm, not just in the immediate aftermath, not just what happened that day and the day after, but really in the months and and ultimately the years that followed, not from a bird's eye policy view, but from the experience of the folks that lived the storm and also lived the recovery that followed. So we weren't looking at big, a kind of um, uh, big picture analyses. We weren't looking at broad economic numbers. We really wanted those those individual human stories, and we wanted not just to capture them, you know, in in an immediate sense, but also to figure out a way to chronicle, to to catalog and archive them so that those stories would live on as part of the, the long memory of Hurricane Sandy for future scholars and practitioners and advocates and government officials to draw from in developing new toolkits for how to deal with the catastrophic storms that are, you know, only growing in both ferocity and frequency as we deal with climate change.
2: And yeah, one of the things that that approach helps you get at is some of the emotions that people were having both during the, the storm and then in the aftermath and the, the rebuilding phase and and so forth. So can you talk a bit about some of the emotional reactions that people had?
1: To the to the storm, you mean? To the experience? The, the storm and that? then
2: in the, the rebuilding phase.
1: Yeah, I think what I was most struck by Were the small moments, right? Not the, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm having to swim down the street to get rescued, which we certainly heard those stories, but the moments where people just realized that their lives had profoundly shifted. Um, you know, the, the woman who stocked up on canned food because she knew that her power would go out, but didn't think about the fact that she had an electric can opener. And so she had no means of opening those cans. The couple where, you know, they were, they were quite elderly and they were thinking about, well, how are we going to get out of our house? And, and he said, okay, I've got my axe. I'm ready. We can, we can um, break a hole in the ceiling. And then he realized that he wouldn't have the strength to do that and to lift them both out. And so they sat down on the bed just quietly and kind of, waited for the storm to do what it was going to do um and and ultimately um you know we interviewed both of them they they both were okay but it was those moments of kind of um recognition of the power of what was happening that didn't didn't cause a cacophony right that that were private that were quiet that nobody ever would have heard about if not for um people giving us their stories you know people trusting us to to take care of their stories
2: yeah the moment that you mentioned there where the the couple is like sitting on their bed watching as the water comes up their stairs towards the second floor and there's nowhere that they can go that was just like ugh. um you know you could you could almost see that on like a, a television show or something but that was it was real it actually happened and they you know, survived. I think you, I said that it got like up to the second floor and then receded again.
1: Yeah. And we heard so many of those stories, you know, this, this moment of, oh, it's going to get me. Oh, it's coming so close. And then, and then really quietly, right. The water just started to recede. And I think for many of the folks that we interviewed, there was this several hour period of, okay, did that actually just happen? I mean, obviously they registered that it happened, but that was such a, an underwhelming, you know, retreat. And they, they didn't, it wasn't until they woke up the next day and went outside and looked around and they kind of took in how profound those, those moments actually were.
2: And then another moment that illustrated another interesting side of the the recovery process was the the Christmas tree, the hope tree uh, that one of the people set up. Can you tell us the story of of the hope tree?
1: Yeah, uh, Jim Butler was somebody whose parents lived right in Union Beach and their house was, was washed away in the storm. And he had been going back to the community to help with the cleanup. A number of weeks and came across this, this old artificial Christmas tree that, um, you know, that had washed up. And kind of on a whim, he decided to set it up on a street corner. And, and appropriately, it was the corner of, of, of Jersey Lane and Shore Avenue, I believe. So Jersey and Shore. And somebody came that night and put an ornament on it. And it kind of became this, it just took on this life of its own, Jim, you know, under cover of night, would go back and um you know put out all these ornaments, arrange these ornaments, and then he started to get donations, and he would give those these donations anonymously to people in the community to you know to go to home depot and and get the the lumber that they needed or or to go and get their kids' christmas presents and um it just it became. Really, a a lifeblood of the neighborhood and ultimately of the state. It was featured on um, many news outlets, featured it on TV. We, my students, and I um, developed an exhibit at the Tuckard and Siemens and Baymans Museum down in South Jersey, and they actually shipped the Hope Tree down so it could be part of the exhibit. And it continues to stand. Um, It's on kind of a permanent structure, it continues to stand um, at that same corner, you know, almost 10 years later. Um, it was actually one of the most fun parts of the book to write because I reconstructed so much of Jim's thought processes and actions through his Facebook pages. Um, you know, he and I, we, we had interviewed him and he gave me access to, to his Facebook content. You know, we, we friended each other on Facebook and so I was able to go back to 2012 and literally like minute by minute, hour by hour, read his real time thoughts and then capture that for, um, for the book. So it was a different kind of research than I had ever done. But it was also just it was really fun to write, um, to kind of tell that story as it was playing out.
2: I'm glad to hear that the the tree is still there because I actually went and looked it up on Facebook after I read that section, and the the official Facebook page uh, hasn't been updated in a couple of years, so I'm glad to know it's still still going.
1: Um, yeah, yeah,
2: but that's a a good segue into another thing I wanted to ask about, which was the role of social media. Uh, you know, how did things like Facebook make Sandy different from you know other storms that came before the era of social media?
1: That's a great question. And it wasn't something I think we expected to encounter when we went into these interviews. Um, you know, power went out all over the region. And so people had their phones, but they didn't have their televisions. They didn't necessarily have radios. Um, Facebook in particular, that was, that was the the social media platform that was most prevalent at the time became a way for people to communicate with each other. So towns set up, um, Pages specifically to communicate information about the storm. People posted photos that night saying, okay, we're here. Like, you know, they, they now have the check this box if you're safe, and we will broadcast that out over social media. That was what people were doing organically during the storm. And then people were creating, you know, de facto um, clothing drives and food, food drives and, and posting, okay, so here I went to this corner and I was able to get a new pair of shoes or this corner doesn't have any gas lines and and they still have stock and people were really using it as a networking platform.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: So then uh, one of the policy dimensions that you bring up is that New Jersey has this home rule law that gives local governments uh, a lot of autonomy. How did that play into the response to Sandy?
1: It's an interesting question. and And I don't know it was hard for me to separate out the real answer to that question from the perception. A number of folks that we interviewed perceived home rule to be a real impediment to uh, a broader network of support. And essentially what the home rule charter does is it creates autonomous kind of mun- municipal entities throughout the state so that every, every city, every um Township, every um, and municipal government has its own autonomy to create um, police forces and, and trash service, and, and all of these things that in other cities and in other, in other states get consolidated based on population. Um, in New Jersey, it's just much more kind of siloed. And some folks felt like because of that, it was um, really inefficient. To create support networks and to do broad scale um, rehabilitation after the storm, when I looked at some of the the, the scholars that were digging into that, they seem to indicate that that may not have actually been true that that the recovery wasn't hampered by home rule, but but it remains to be but it but it remains true that people felt that, and I think so much of the recovery process. Is about the lived experience rather than you know what's actually happening at the state level Um, those two things are equally important to people's um, impressions of what's going on
2: and so going up to the state level uh, the governor at the time Chris Christie shows up a lot in the book so how did people in this area of New Jersey feel about Chris Christie and his handling of the storm?
1: Yeah, I think Sandy really put Chris Christie on the map in a national way. And he was really seen as a, so he's a Republican governor of a blue state. Um, the area that we were documenting leans leans red. Um, so he had a fair bit of, he had a disproportionate amount of support on the Bay Shore relative to the rest of the state. And he was pretty popular across the the state, despite it being, you know, leaning blue. Um, And Sandy just gave him, he became this media darling. And he did so because he really said, you know, forget about politics, forget about Democrats versus Republicans, forget about the upcoming presidential election. Like, we need to focus on what's going on here. And I need to make sure I'm getting stuff done for my constituents. And he did this, you know. Right before the 2012 election between Obama and Mitt Romney and a lot of people in the Republican Party got really upset that he would um, kind of jeopardize those political relationships, um, jeopardize Romney's chances in the state for um, for, you know, this this bigger this bigger picture. Um, And he had this really significant rise and then it started to unravel. And I think, you know, if you ask the folks on the Bay Shore, it started to unravel not in the months after the storm, but in the years after the storm with unmet promises and people feeling like he had kind of staked his claim on making sure that every single person felt heard and supported. And ultimately, many people on the Bay Shore felt like, his attention was redirected toward the Atlantic coastline toward the tor- toward the tourism industry at the expense of the year round residents
2: yeah, I remember seeing his kind of rise and fall in in the media um, through the the storm and then some of the, the scandals that came up afterwards. Um, yeah, and
1: obviously there's a much bigger context to that a political context, an economic context, a, a, a national pol- political context. Um, but for the folks living on the Bay Shore, so much of their perception of him was wrapped up in the Sandy response, both good and bad.
2: Yeah. So I want to circle back around now to the oral history project that provided kind of the the base for this that started with that uh, class that you did just the semester after it and you said i think 80 interviews uh that you ultimately did um so what were some of the the major challenges and uh like opportunities cool things that happened during the course of that oral history project
1: yeah that's a great question and i again i have such a hard time separating out the project from from the book, in part because I'm so proud of the work my students did and so proud of how much they stepped into this, this pretty uncomfortable role. None of them had any backgrounds in oral history. Um, five of them were history majors. One was an English major. And they all just kind of took this leap of faith with me, right? I said to them, this is not something that I have done before. This is not something that our university has done before. Let's create something together. Um, and they bought into that. And they went and kind of created something that they wanted. So every step of the way, right? Like from the title of the project, we spent an entire four hours coming up with the title of the project, which was Staring Out to Sea, um, largely because one of the students really liked the alliteration. Um, they went to community meetings in towns along the Bay Shore to recruit narrators and to tell people that this project was happening. They traveled to Washington, D.C. and to Oklahoma City to present at academic conferences, and they really reimagined how they saw themselves um, through this project. You, You talk to them now, and they still, 10 years later, a number of them will point to this project as a pivotal moment of their academic and professional careers. One student went on to do disaster relief work um, through kind of I can't remember the name of the program but it's kind of the corollary to AmeriCorps specifically with disaster relief um, another one thought very seriously about going to get a master's in oral history and ultimately ended up kind of integrating some of that work into her secondary teaching a third became a public interest lawyer and really says that this storm this this project gave him a different orientation toward the type of law he wanted to practice. Um, and that's all because of what they put into it. like i I just I continue to be amazed by the work that they did. And, and, and as you say, it was not without challenges. Um, you know, trying to do a multi-year project on a semester system meant that once that one semester ended, the students had to stay involved either out of the goodness of their heart or because, you know, through internship credit, through independent study and then they graduated and we tried to maintain some momentum with it but it was much more in fits and starts at that point um with a, with a few other students coming on and collecting interviews or or reinterviewing folks after we had interviewed them the first time funding was was a really big challenge you know sustaining that momentum over a number of years lack of skills, really, like I was learning this as I went as well. And so I had a pretty good handle on the oral history arm of it. But some of the the digital humanities pieces, you know, I felt like a fish out of water there. Um, And ultimately, we were able to partner with another university in South Jersey and a class down there that was specifically focused on digital humanities kind of took up the presentation arm of the project. So opportunities came out of those challenges, but, but it was not just a, you know, an easy road from start to completion.
2: Okay. So this is a a relatively slim book. So, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers uh, and discourage people from going out and and picking it up themselves. So I want to now sort of move in towards the the wrap up to our, our interview by asking you uh, first, is there anyone that you'd like to give a shout out or a thank you to whose help was important to you as you were writing the book?
1: Um, absolutely. Both in the creation of the project and the writing of the book, um, Kate Stott down in the Senate, Dan Royals who at the time was the, the professor at Stockton University where we did the, um, the digital humanities arm Doug Boyd at the Kentucky, uh, the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky, where the interviews are now housed. All of them were kind of instrumental in helping drive the project forward. Um, and, and the students, um, and I, I'm, I'm worried about naming them because I'm, I'm terrified I'm going to forget somebody, but let me, let me try to do this without having a list in front of me. Um, Mary Paisecchi, Alicia Hill, Brittany Lestrange, Araj Syed, Fat Rashid uh, and Trudy Lawrence were the six original students in the project and they ended up being interviewed for the project as well. So we have their own oral histories um, as part of the collection. Um, so their experience lives on as well.
2: And then the final question, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next.
1: Yeah, I just started a new project, which I'm 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 super excited about. Actually, um, it blends the work I've been doing in recent years on oral history with what I, you know, studied as a as a grad student and and beyond. And so, I'm writing about the move bombing in Philadelphia, which took place in 1985 when the city's mayor authorized the police department to drop two tons of explosives on the residential home and headquarters of a group called MOVE, which um, espoused the politics of Black power and prioritized the kind of intrinsic value of all living things, kind of radical environmentalism. Um, And there's a very long, long history to the incident itself, to the relationship between MOVE and the city. Um, But what I'm actually writing about is the journalists that covered the bombing over the course of the week that it took place, kind of how they crafted the story, what editorial decisions they made, how did they curate this collective understanding and ultimately a collective memory of that day, which which lives on in incredibly complicated ways, both in the city and in the country.
2: Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing that. And so thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
2: This has been a conversation with Abigail Perkis, author of Hurricane Sandy on New Jersey's Forgotten Shore, published this year by Cornell University Press.